From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Jody Heiss, a senior advisor to the president here at the Family Research Council, and extremely honored to be filling in for Tony this week and extremely glad to have you on board with us as well. I think we've got an incredibly insightful program lined up for you this evening. So let's jump into some of the highlights that we'll be discussing. The fallout from the federal district court's ruling invalidating the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the chemical abortion drug on last Friday has made quite a stir. In fact, House Democrats are already working on a bill to counteract the decision that was put in place to literally stop these dangerous drugs. So the question, how should the GOP respond? Well, Maryland Congressman Andy Harris, a member of the GOP's Doctors Caucus, will be joining me to discuss that here in just a little while. Also, catch this clip. At my request, the University of Massachusetts Amherst agreed to purchase approximately 15,000 doses of mifeprestone. That's, that's enough, that's sufficient to ensure coverage for well over a year. Wow, stockpiling the drug. That was remarks made yesterday by Massachusetts Governor Mara Healey. Uh, and keep in mind, their state is one of several that are stockpiling the abortion pills right now, but missing in the midst of all their rhetoric. Well, they're not talking about any of the reason behind the court decision last Friday, namely how harmful these drugs are. Well, Dr. Ingrid Scott, Vice President and Director of Medical Affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, will be joining me in a little while to discuss the science that the left conveniently leaves out and, frankly, would like for you to not be aware of. And then, as Christians, we all realize that we're called to love and to minister to others. But there's been a recent push, even within quite a number of evangelical circles, for this love, as we want to call it, to ignore truth and literally to accept sin. This is something all of us need to be aware of. This is especially apparent in the efforts to persuade Christians to use transgender pronouns as some sort of hospitable way, a winsome way, to show respect to someone's chosen identity. Whether we agree or disagree with their pronoun use, can we meet them where they're at? Can we be hospitable even in disagreement and use their pronouns? And that's the view that I would recommend. That view is being widespread, and we want to talk about that. By the way, that was Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He's the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And he was responding to the question specifically, should Christians use preferred pronouns? But, you know, here's the question we've all got to consider with this. How does developing relationships built on falsehood and lies give the gospel some sort of better hearing? Well, author and speaker Rosaria Butterfield recently had her own convictions about all of this challenged in a remarkable way. She'll be joining me to explain that. So we've got a lot of great topics that are before us today. You don't want to miss a single one of them. But Again, if in case you do miss portions of today's program, you can always go back and catch it at TonyPerkins.com. And, of course, you can always find details and action items there as well. So uh, be sure to keep the website handy, TonyPerkins.com. All right, so let's go on now to our first topic. As I mentioned at the top of the program, 
the fallout from the federal district court decision stopping the FDA's approval of chemical abortion drugs literally has House Democrats in overdrive. Uh, they, they are committed to keeping these harmful drugs on, on the market, and even the Biden administration themselves are scrambling for clarity on this whole issue. Uh, but one thing has become evident through this entire process uh, is how literally ill-informed so much of the public, and perhaps even the media is, on the dangers that these drugs present to the women who take them. So how should Congress respond? Well, joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Andy Harris. He's a member of the House uh, Appropriations Committee. He's also co-chair of the House Pro-Life Caucus, and he's a member of the GOP Doctors Caucus. He represents Maryland's first congressional district. Dr. Harris, welcome back to Washington Watch. Always great to see you. Good to be with you, Jody. Well, listen, let's begin just with the, the simple. You're, you're a doctor, a well well-known doctor for that matter. Uh, give me your thoughts on the court's rulings. Well, the court got it right. I mean, the FDA cut corners uh, to politically approve the drug. And uh, even though it's been out there for decades, it doesn't make a difference. The FDA cut corners. Uh, there are strict rules in how you're supposed to uh, t test the drug before you market it. Uh, it's been marketed to uh, teenagers and children when clearly it was not studied in that group. Uh, so, look, we have all the laws in place we need. The FDA didn't follow the law in this approval, and the, the district court got it right. Well, you know, that is the issue. That is one of the major issues in this whole argument right now that's been totally ignored. Uh, many on the left are saying this this judge just went rogue. He's uh, ignoring the science. But you followed the science, and this drug was not properly approved 20 years ago. And that was the issue that this uh, particular judge recognized. And, and yet some on the left are, are saying that uh, this whole ruling should be ignored altogether. I'm sure you probably have seen this by now, but Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is among those who are saying that. I, I wanted to play this quick uh, clip and get your reactions to it. I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. The interesting thing when it comes to a ruling is that it relies on enforcement. And it is up to the Biden administration to enforce, to choose whether or not to enforce such a ruling. Uh, amazing that, that we have a member of Congress calling for a, a judicial or federal decision to be ignored. Your reaction? Look, these are the same people who declare that they are the protectors of democracy. Uh, I'm sorry, democracy in this country includes three branches of government, includes a judicial branch. When the judicial branch makes a decision, you either appeal to the decision to success or you follow the ruling. That's the way democracy works. So the same individuals who are saying that, uh, again, somehow Republicans are the enemies of democracy in this country now call for a complete breakdown in the democratic system in the United States, which involves three branches of government with the judicial branch. And I, I beg to differ with my colleague. The executive branch is supposed to follow the authority of the legislative branch and the judicial branch. Yeah, great point. And this is what's, you know, this is one of the things that's so disturbing about all of this. There's another clip, uh, Congressman, that I wanted to get your reaction to as well. This one's by HHS Secretary uh, Becerra on the CNN State of the Union this past Sunday. But I'd like to play this and get your reaction to his comments as well. This is not America. What you saw 
by that one judge in that one court in that one state. That's not America. Uh, America goes by the evidence. America does what's fair. America does what is transparent and can, we can show that what we do is for the right reasons. That's not America. So it's not America for a judge to make a decision based upon how this drug really illegally was brought forth 20 years ago. Quickly, your reaction, then I want to move on. Look, shame on the secretary. He's in charge of the FDA. The bottom line is that the FDA clearly cut corners here. There was no full transparency. I don't know what he means about fairness. Uh, look, we have laws in place. Uh, this is not this is not America. This is exactly how America works. We put laws in place. The FDA is supposed to follow them. They shortchanged them here, and the judicial branch caught up with them. Yeah, and that's why we have three equal branches. I mean, the, uh, the, this drug was not properly approved, and it's this the proper way to say, hold back. Let's let's wait a minute. Let's get this thing right. All right, now you have been aware of the dangers of this drug for uh, probably decades, haven't you? Yeah, this th- look. This is not a Tylenol. This is not a I- ibuprofen. This is these these are this is a serious drug. It's a serious hormone. Uh, it absolutely is. Uh, that's why it's not over the counter. It's only available by prescription. It actually was available only in person uh, because of some of the side effects. Until again, the FDA reversed that uh, decision uh, based on polit- I believe based on politics. Uh, this drug should only be given in a physician's office if it's going to be given because you have to actually accurately date the pregnancy uh, in order for it to be given uh, w- without uh, serious side effects. Well, you hit on something, and I just want to underscore it before we move on to another topic. But but you, you indicated that this is politically driven, in your opinion. So uh, does the the FDA's behavior now um, fit really what appears to be a, a pattern of government agencies following a political agenda rather than following the science? Well, it's certainly, from, again, from Secretary Becerra's comments, it certainly seems that's what we have now. Look, if the Congress wants to change the laws and make all the drug laws more lax, make them all of you know these dangerous type drugs available without adequate studies, okay, we should consider that. But we have good laws in place. I believe that we should do rigorous studies of uh, drugs that are uh, prescription drugs. This one was not submitted to rigorous study. Well, and unfortunately, I believe there's so much credibility has been lost and is continuing to be lost. I mean, you have what uh, the performance of the CDC, for example, during all the COVID stuff, the weaponization of the Department of Justice uh, with the FBI. And now we have the FDA uh, doing these shenanigans, if you will, in a drug that is harmful uh, to many, many people. Who take it. They, like you said, it's almost they're treating it like ibuprofen at some point. If not already, people are going to uh, lose trust in our federal agencies, and that's very difficult to restore. If we- I believe that. I believe that we are losing trust in our federal health agencies. Another example of the FDA is approving the COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, for six-month-olds. Uh, you know, clearly yeah. an experimental drug, clearly not a large number of uh, uh, patients studied uh, before they approved it uh, for no apparent good reason. Great example. Another example there. All right. If we can, Congressman, let's switch gears real quickly. Uh, uh, Yesterday, President Biden signed a congressional resolution to end the U.S. national emergency uh, to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Why uh, why do you think it's uh, literally taken an act of Congress to get the president to do this? 
Well, look, the reason is pretty clear, Jody. The president was spending tens of billions of dollars every month on the COVID, I put in air quotes, emergency uh, throughout all the agencies in government. And he knew that uh, that those dollars couldn't be spent if you ended the emergency. So he resisted ending the emergency. But if you go out on the streets and you go to talk to people, look, this emergency is over. People want to return to their normal pre-COVID lives. And uh, this, again, this is an example of where they did it just so they could spend tens of billions of taxpayer dollars. Well, you know, and it's it's kind of somewhat comical or humorous, if you will, or or maybe maybe that's not even the right description at all. Perhaps a little fishy that the actual signing of this took place uh, behind closed doors and uh, it was only only made known from the White House with just like a one line statement that the president signed this and kind of into discussion. I, I wonder your thoughts. Could it be that the president has uh, is is remorseful, perhaps upset that he's losing some emergency pandemic powers? Oh, he absolutely is. When this bill was considered in the beginning of February, the administration wrote a note to the Congress saying that the president opposes this lifting of the emergency. And look, you would think that the lifting of this emergency would be a cause for national celebration, that the president would be signing it on the National Mall, you know, no masks, no separation from people anymore, businesses open. No, this president wanted an emergency to continue because, again, they can spend tens of billions of dollars, and more importantly, they can continue to control your lives. Congressman Andy Harris, thank you so much for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. Good to see you. Thank you, Jody. All right, friends, coming up, the left's reaction to the court ruling that the FDA stopped production of chemical abortion drugs. Uh, Boy, they're upset. Uh, They're upset. Uh, Dr. Ingrid Skop is going to join me after the break to get into this. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. 
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Jody Heiss, an honor to be filling in for Tony this week. Well, the left has been literally outraged. They've gone, frankly, quite ballistic ever since the court decision on Friday uh, that the FDA bypassed safety concerns in the political rush to put chemical abortion drugs on the market. And missing from all the left's talking points in this is consideration of the merits of the decision that was made last Friday, let alone any analysis as to how best to protect the health of women. Quite frankly, the abortion industry claims that it exists to support the health of the mother, but the abortion pill regimen absolutely poses significant health risks, uh, dangers to those who take it. So the left is all too eager to ignore the truth here, to ignore the science. Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Ingrid Scott. She's the vice president and director of medical affairs at the Charlotte Lozier Institute uh, Dr. Scott, thank you, thank you so much for being back on Washington Watch. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back with you guys. Well, let's get started here. I want to play uh, to begin with some remarks that were made Sunday by HHS Secretary Javier Becerra. Of course, he's the the top Biden health care official. But his his remarks regarding Friday's court ruling. If the role of judges of justices is to apply the law to the facts and the evidence. The facts and the scientific evidence are that mifepristone is not just safe, but it's effective, and it was properly approved. There's so much about the com- those comments are just absolutely inaccurate. We know that the FDA rushed these pills to approval for political reasons 20 years ago. So let's let's begin. Just walk our uh, walk our viewers and listeners through what the FDA ignored and and talk about the dangers of these pills. Absolutely. The the pills themselves are two two medications. Mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors. It cuts off the hormonal support that causes the embryo to die. And then it's followed generally about 24 hours later by mesoprostol that induces labor to expel the pregnancy tissue. Mifepristone was approved um, by the FDA in 2000, and we see that the entire process was politicized. President Clinton asked the French manufacturer to bring it here. He intervened in the process. The FDA approved the drug under a special category, subpart H, accelerated approval regulations, which is meant for drugs that treat life-threatening illnesses for which there is no other treatment available. Well, pregnancy, of course, is almost never a life-threatening illness, 
and surgical abortions were widely available. In the 1990s, there were between a million and a million and a half surgical abortions every year. So that was already available to women. These chemical abortion pills we find over and over have at least four times the complications. At the time that they approved it, the studies that they used were very poor quality. In the United States, we don't have much about abortion data that is mandatorily requested. So if the abortion industry decided to tell the FDA about their complications, then they knew about it. And if not, then that information remained unknown. The FDA did not um, study young women. Um, they're required to by their own laws, um, women under the age of 18, but there is no lower age limit. 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds take these pills, and it has never been studied how they affect them. Um, going on, the FDA has used um, has loosened restrictions over and over, and the reality right now is that there is no requirement that a doctor look a woman in the eye, that he do an ultrasound to determine gestational age or rule out ectopic pregnancy, um, that he even... Um, uh, confirm that it's a woman seeking abortion. Uh, people are getting these pills over the internet. So we know that there's a lot of malfeasance and people getting the pills who don't need to have access to them. All right. You bring up a lot of incredibly important points right there. Uh, and you know, the, the bottom line, I suppose, is that the, the, the facts and the scientific evidence is not what was considered 20 years ago. In fact, if I can paraphrase more or less, my understanding of what the Clinton administration communicated to the FDA was this bill is going to uh, be approved uh, and and it's going to be pushed through. Uh, so let's kind of back up and discuss more specifically and remind our audience here of the, the dangers of these chemical abortion pills. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we keep hearing the mantra safe and effective, safe and effective. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that there aren't complications. Um, the abortion industry generally will publish studies saying about 1% to 2% of the time it fails requiring surgery. But again, they're only telling us about the complications they know about. They tell women it's safer than Tylenol. So when these women do have complications, they feel betrayed. They feel misled. Um, and so they don't go back to that abortion provider. They go to other gynecologists. They go to emergency rooms. I've taken care of many of these women in Texas, and they're surprised and they're afraid. They're um, they're they're hemorrhaging, or sometimes they're bleeding for long periods of time, six, eight weeks, because the tissue, um, the dead tissue, can't be expressed, and this, of course, leads them at risk for infection. When we look at good quality studies, um, records linkage where we know the abortions and we can find all of the medical events afterwards, um, we find that about five to 8%, more than one in 20 of these women has a failed abortion. So she has to have another surgical procedure. And again, these procedures are often in um, emergent situations, in emergency rooms where doctors have to drop the care of their other patients to go take care of the woman who's in distress. Um, so clearly these are, it, it's a horrible experience for women. It's a terrible way to care for women. Um, and uh, four times more complicated than surgical abortion. So why did they switch from surgical to chemical? Well, they did it so they, they could um, 
provide more abortions so they could bypass state regulations. And the truth is that most obstetricians don't want to perform a surgical abortion. So they were having trouble finding doctors even willing to provide abortion, which is why they chose to prioritize chemical abortions. Dr. Scott, if you would, I'm going to ask if you would to join us to hang over and come back for our next se- segment after the break. I want to play this, uh, and and you bring up some point. I mean, unbelievable that we're actually giving a drug that's dangerous, and one out of fifty are going who take it are going to have to have surgeries. But uh, real quickly, I want to play a clip, and after the break, I want to get your reaction to it. Mifepristone has been a safe and effective FDA-approved medication for over twenty years. For over twenty years, think about that. It's the gold standard in medication abortion care. The gold standard of medication abortion care. Unbelievable. I want to get your reaction to that after the break. Folks, thank you so much for joining us this evening on Washington Watch. Stay tuned. We've got much more to cover with Dr. Scott on this whole issue of chemical abortion. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Back to Washington Watch. Again, I'm your host, Jody Heiss, and honored to be with you. I'm continuing the conversation we had in the last segment with Dr. Ingrid Skop. She's a senior fellow and director of medical affairs for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And we're discussing the uh, federal district court ruling last week uh, on the FDA's FDA's rushed approval of chemical abortions. And the judge stopped all that, uh, at least for the time being. Dr. Skop, thanks for sticking around during the break. Let's go back to the... A uh, clip that, that we heard in the Massachusetts mayor there 
saying that this is the gold standard of uh, abortion health care. Give me your response to that. Well, first of all, it's incredible to hear someone describe a method for killing human beings as the gold standard. I, I felt a little like I might be back in Nazi Germany, but it is the only chemical abortion regimen that is approved by the FDA. So I suppose she's trying to make the point that it's an approved regimen. But as this lawsuit points out, if the FDA broke its own rules, if it used suboptimal data to approve this medication, I mean, the the, perp, the sole purpose of the FDA is to protect the American people from dangerous drugs. And these drugs are clearly dangerous for women, five to eight percent requiring surgery, often in emergent situations. So a surgical abortion, again, is much safer for a woman. So if the industry really cared about women, they'd be offering them surgical abortions. But what they do is they promote these chemical abortions. They tell them it's natural. They can have the abortion in the comfort of their own home. They make it sound like it's this great thing. But what happens, these women are now living in their abortion clinic. Every time they walk into their restroom, they remember the pain, the bleeding, and in many cases, the sight of their own child's body. Because at 10 weeks gestational age, this baby is about the size of a gummy bear. He's clearly identifiable as a human being. So this is a horrible way to treat women. But, you know, they've already told us what their next step is. It's not to promote more surgical abortions. It's to take the second component of this pill, which is even more dangerous. Mesoprostol alone fails in 22% of women, so almost one out of four women will require surgery, but they're already telling us we're going to go ahead and direct women toward the one uh, pill regimen, which is mesoprostol alone, because it's easier to obtain. And this is clearly showing us that their priority is not women's safety. It's the ending the life of unborn humans. Well, it's the ending the life of unborn children, but it's a pushing uh, really their sacred cow of a political agenda, and specifically in this instance, the abortion industry. Uh, going back to the uh, health implications of these drugs, the uh, reporting is rarely detailed of the, the issues that you're bringing forth right now. But uh, there was a recent uh, New York Times piece that attempted, frankly, to defend these pills but at the same time, they literally illustrated their danger with some of the stats that you mentioned, how many women taking these pills end up with uh, having to have surgery or some other uh, emergency room visit or whatever it may uh, be. What did you think of the article? Well, the article had some really amazing graphics. So if you're somebody who's just impressed by icons moving around, it looked very impressive. But when we dug into it, for one thing, they didn't even link to all the studies that they said they were reporting on. So there's no way to know to really look at the studies. But um, the problem with so many of these studies is a large amount of women lost to follow up. Again, we just can't link the records because most abortions in our country are paid for privately. So those women lost a follow-up. The studies usually assume that was an uncomplicated abortion. But as the doctor who's cared for so many of these women, I can tell you it's more likely those were complicated abortions. Um, they, uh, they, the studies that Charlotte Lozier produced, which are very high-quality records linkage studies, they acted like these weren't important studies. But in fact, these were able to detect 
that in many cases, the women who presented to emergency rooms and um, and had complications were miscoded as having been due to a miscarriage. So it just goes to show how poor our data is in the United States. But having five to 8% complications qualifies as a common complication. That is not safe and effective. And the euphemisms that the abortion industry uses to push these products really aren't going to work anymore. We've got to look behind the curtain. We've got to see what the data really shows. And we've got to recognize in 2020, there are over half a million chemical abortions. If 5% of those women had complications, that means 25,000 women had complications. That is not safe. That's not safe. Listen, we've only got about a minute left, so I hate that our conversation is coming to a, a rapid conclusion. But one of the other issues they rarely talked about is how these drugs are used in the uh, w- for women trapped in sex trafficking. I mean, this is uh, an additional problem that uh, needs attention. In about 30 seconds, your response. Yeah, absolutely. It is acknowledged that one of the best places where you can intercept a trafficked woman is in a medical healthcare setting. But they've taken these pills totally outside of medical supervision. So their women are getting them, they're taking them, they're suffering complications. And unless the complication is severe where they end up in an emergency room, they're never seeing a doctor at all. So we've missed an opportunity to try to intervene for these poor, unfortunate women. We really have. And this is a time, I think, for all of us to look in the mirror and to recognize the enormous task we have before us to educate people as to the reality of these uh, chemical abortion drugs. Thank you so much, Dr. Ingrid Skop. Thank you for uh, hanging over for a double segment here on this incredibly important topic. My pleasure, Congressman. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, folks, coming up, the issue of pronoun hospitality has forced many Christians to choose between embracing a lie to get along or stand for truth. I'll discuss much more of this right after the break. Stay tuned. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. 
with just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, Students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. It's an honor to be with you, and thank you for joining us on this very important topic right here. You know, as the transgender ideology continues to march its way through our schools, through multiple different institutions, literally policing language and compelling certain terms— uh, that type of thing is just becoming more and more commonplace. But even more disturbingly, uh, when it comes to using transgender pronouns, many Christians are okay with this. Their argument is that uh, using transgender pronouns is a way to be respectful to someone's chosen identity, that it's kind, it's courteous, it's winsome. Well, author and speaker Rosaria Butterfield is a Christian who once shared that same belief. She's recently caused quite a stir in the Christian online world with an article calling out her former position as sinful, and she has publicly repented. She joins me now to discuss her recent article and why this issue is so important for the ministry of the church going forward. Rosaria, welcome to Washington Watch. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Well, listen, I don't know that we can really do justice to your article recently or uh, the position that you're currently taking without discussing your history uh, for those who might not be familiar with it. Uh, You were a self-described tenured radical professor and a (laughs) proud lesbian. And uh, then in 1999, uh, you had an encounter with Christ Uh, You repented, you gave your life to the Lordship of Christ, and of course you went through a lot of rejection, and you're despised (laughs) by a lot of people uh, because of that. But this brings us to the issue of the transgender pronouns. Uh, You you yourself previously used them as a way to be polite and winsome and thoughtful of others. And I want to play a clip as we get started in our discussion of an argument Uh, similarly, that many Christians make that would agree with that position. Since language is shared social space, I think it's okay to say, okay, I have my worldview and I can't, I'm not going to change that, 
but I can meet person B where they're at and use the pronouns that reflect their worldview, even if I totally disagree with that worldview. All right, so it sounds reasonable, sounds good. We're going to try to be polite. We're going to try to build a bridge to these people's lives. That was Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Uh, he's the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And again, he was responding to this whole question, should, should Christians use uh, preferred pronouns? Uh, so give me your reaction to that, and uh, yeah. let, let's go down this path. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that works on the idea that the language that we use is simply um, terminology. So we could use any number of things as substitutes. You can open your synonym finder, and it's just a matter of finding substitutes. But that's just not true. Um, transgenderism is satanic, and the language that protects it is ideological, not not merely a uh, an, an act of of terminology. So it's naive, it's dangerous, and I, of course, was one of the the, the primary proponents of this, um, and so I repent. Yeah, listen, I think uh, that is a powerful statement that that is, it, we're not just talking terminology. We mm-hmm. are agreeing with that which is either true or a lie, that which is either right or wrong. And while people are saying it's an issue of being kind or courteous, uh, that is not what the issue is all about here at all. No, and in fact, it's really um, it's really quite deceptive, which is how Satan, of course, works. It's about conceding the moral language to the left's understanding of identity politics rather than offering a biblical understanding of morality and hope. Well, and that's what we try to do here on Washington Watch and at FRC is to prevent, present the, the news and issues of the day from a biblical worldview perspective. Mm-hmm. And your position on this, I think probably many listening or watching right now are probably scratching their heads saying what she is saying makes all the biblical sense in the world. Because, I mean, this is this is speaking truth. And when we just uh, go down the path, really, of agreeing, uh, we're we're trying to develop a relationship on falsehood. Is that correct? Right, absolutely. And it's a little bit like, you know, playing on the enemy's turf, and it makes no sense. You know, the house always wins. If you go into this debate and you you concede the moral language that the Bible offers, and with that, the 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 power of the blood of Christ uh, to transform lives, you are really being hopeless and and very therapeutic. And that's what you really see here. You see that um, instead of the gospel that really changes people, that transforms people's lives, you see a kind of gospel of pluralism and therapy. And so instead of um, loving your enemies, you know, in the, under the gospel of pluralism and therapy, you're called to just pretend that your enemies are your friends. And that's, that's vile. That's, that's dangerous. And, um, and it's cowardly. Wow. I, well, you certainly don't mince words on your position and where you, where you are now. You, you, and you didn't mince words uh, with your article. Uh, it was entitled, My Use of Transgendered Pronouns Was Not a Mistake, It Was Sin. All right. So first of all, uh, let's uh, let's find out where people can find the article. 
but then tell us specifically how you came to the conclusion that this was not just a mistake, it was a sin. Right, right, right. Well, the article is up at a a journal called Reformation 21, but um, the content of it is also in my forthcoming book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, which will be published by Crossway in September. So um, I had actually come to this perspective before Monday of last week, but with the Nashville shooting and with the rise of really transgender rage, I felt it was extremely necessary for me to really spell out what repentance looks like. Because in some ways, my article wants to do two things. It wants to deal with the content of the problem. Transgender pronouns is ideological, not terminological. But it also wants to deal with another problem. Those of us, like myself, who have either used this carelessly or worse, um, promoted it intentionally, need to do more than just course correct. I course corrected years ago. I mean, I you know, I this was not this is not a new position that I took here. But what's new? All right, we've lost uh, we we've lost Rosaria. We're going to try to get her back. But what a fascinating position that she's taking. And if you go through and read her article, you'll find that she she says that part of the reason she concluded that this was sin was because it, it goes against the ninth commandment, which is you should not bear false witness. Well, bearing false witness in this case is literally to agree with the use of the pronoun usages that you're okay. And it's okay for me to uh, address you in an improper manner in according to reality and according to biblical truth. So it is in that regard, she says, bearing false witness. And and it's also, she says, it's a sin against the uh, creation ordinance that God created male and female. I mean, this is not rocket science. And I love the the way in which Rosaria approaches this, uh, that this is not simply an issue of terminology. There's an, there, there, there is a, an ideology behind all of this. And it, it is literally, she says, a sin against image bearing uh, that, that is God created. So this is, a, this is one of those things that I believe is extremely important for us to recognize that in the process of trying to love people, in the process of trying to build bridges to people's lives, we need to do so truthfully. And we need to do so in a manner that is in accordance with biblical truth. I believe we have Rosaria back. Thank you. Sorry we lost you there for a moment. I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, listen, I was I was uh, discussing while while we lost you there, the position you had that this is, uh, among other things, a violation of the, the ninth commandment, the, the, the bearing false witness uh, and these type of things. Um, and so so just continue, if you will. I don't want to uh, try put words in your mouth, but you concluded your position previously was sin. Right. Continue. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and 
Uh, one of the reasons why it, it, it's really important to think about this in terms of violation of commandments is transgenderism is itself the sin of envy. It is the, the violation. Transgenderism is the, the breaking of the 10th commandment. You are not to covet your neighbor's wife and you're not to covet your neighbor's sexual anatomy. And it therefore Christians who just who, who buy into this are failing to remember that we're at a we're really at a crisis place right now. Any culture that grows in its homosexuality and its transgenderism is a culture under judgment. And we are called to, um, of course, to be to be salt and light, but we're not going to get there by being a quote unquote soft presence. This whole soft presence idea, um, you know, it, it has really it's backfired every single time. And it's um, it, we're at a crisis level, especially with the way that transgenderism targets young children. Um, we have no Christians have no business being cowardly and sinful on this issue right now, as I was for so many years. Well, uh, you know, and I, I love the approach that you take with this, Rosaria. Uh, you know, when when all is said and done, uh, it comes down to. I, as Christians, we are trying to love people and uh, bring them into the saving knowledge of Christ. But when we agree with that which is false, with that which is a lie, and the, the whole communication is built upon that which is false, really, we are failing to offer genuine hospitality and love. And instead, right. we're, we're yielding to uh, identity politics and whatever you want to call this, but we're not offering Christian love. No, abs- absolutely, and and you know we're 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 really failing um, our our children in the church. We're failing our Lord. It's a very complex situation. But we need to understand where we are historically too. Um, we are post Obergefell, post Bostock, post the ironically titled Respect of Marriage Act. Um, We're a couple of days past the transgender day of visibility with our president um, falsifying what image bearing of a holy God means. You know, we are made in the image of God, but we are not made as the image of God. And um, the fact that the church is so divided on this very simple point really speaks to the fact that we are in an emergency and um and and we need to treat it as as such yeah. i um you know I, I i speak to people whose children are trapped in transgenderism and many of them live in states where the laws are protecting the the child abuse really and not parental rights this is very serious so for christians to not stand with truth is literally putting everyday people's lives on the line. And um, the danger of this gender affirming uh, therapy is, is profound and pronounced. And it, this should be very, very clear, but we need to remember that we are many, many um, years into this ambiguity, right? I mean, before transgenderism, we had, all of the gay Christian movements. And, and you hear things like, you know, the whole point was to 
reconcile my homosexuality with my Christian life. Well, you know, newsflash, that's not how it works. Um, the, the Lord Jesus Christ does not make an ally with the sin that he, that his blood crushes on the cross. It's not meant to be that way. I mean, I praise God that when I uh, came to Christ, I came to Christ, uh, in a church where people knew the gospel and they didn't say, Rosaria, could you help us be more gay? Maybe we should have a gay bowling league. So you'll feel better. They said, repent, believe, and don't be gay anymore. And well, let's by hit the on power- that. Listen, I'm so sorry. We've only got about a minute or so left. I got one more clip, and then I want to get back to that point on repentance. Whether we agree or disagree with their pronoun use, can we meet them where they're at? Can we be hospitable even in disagreement and use their pronouns? And that's the view that I would recommend. All right. So you were there. You've been in that. You've embraced that position. Probably a lot of Christians right now struggle with that. But uh, you brought yourself to publicly repent of that view uh, in about 30 seconds or so. Uh, let, let's go down this whole issue of repentance. Well, I mean, re- repentance simply acknowledges that when sin is not mortified, Christ is not glorified. And so my business is I'm not a professional Christian. I'm a sinner saved by the blood of Christ. And as a public figure, even if I sinned 10 years ago on this subject, course corrected after that, it's not enough. It's the Aiken in the camp, and it's serious. Rosaria, thank you so much for coming on the program and for this incredible uh, insight that you bring. Thank you. All right, friends, I tell you, we've, as unfortunate, our time is wrapped up. Have a fantastic remainder of your interview. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 